Is that enough of a reason to decide to pass it by a pointer? Always, just by default. Well, I guess I'm trying to figure out how your example works. So your example says you're holding a map that contains a big byte slice or something like that? I just mean a struct. Uh, your own your own type, but it's got a lot of you consider it big. I see. But maybe it makes sense in your API that uh, you know you don't have a pointer because you're not going to be modifying this. So you want to pass it in, but do you get a performance penalty if it's copying all that data into the You definitely do. And I think that there's a judgment call about what's that threshold? Like when is it worth it to allocate and pass this thing by pointer? And we haven't even really talked about the performance costs of allocation really just yet. I'm sure that will come up soon. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by SourceGraph. SourceGraph is universal code search that lets you move fast, even in big code bases. Here's CTO and co-founder Byung Liu explaining the problems that SourceGraph solves for software teams. Yeah, so at a high level, the problems that SourceGraph solves, it's this problem of, for any given developer, there's kind of two types of code in the world, roughly speaking. There's the code that you wrote and understand, like the back of your hand, and then there's the code that some idiot out there wrote. Or, you know, alternatively, if you know you don't like the term idiot, it's the code that some inscrutable genius wrote and that you're trying to understand. And oftentimes that inscrutable genius is like you from, you know, a year ago. <laughs> and, and you're going back and, and trying to make heads or tails of, of what's going on. And really, Sourcecraft is about making that code that some idiot or inscrutable genius wrote feel more like the code that you wrote and understand kind of intuitively. It's all about helping you grok all the code that's out there, all the code that's in your organization, all the code that is relevant to you in open source, all the code that you need to understand in order to do your job, which is to build the feature, write the new code, fix the bug, etc. All right, learn how Sourcegraph can help your team at info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. Again, info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. If you like Go Time, you might enjoy our new show, Ship It, featuring conversations focused on ops, infra, code, real world experiments on our open source platform. What's not to love? Check it out at changelog.com slash ship it, where you'll find in your favorite podcast app. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya and today we're talking about memory management. We're joined by distinguished engineer Brian Borum from Grafana. Hello, Brian. Hi there. Hi, Matt. Welcome to Go Time. Thank you for having me. No, it's our pleasure. We're also joined today by Director of Engineering at Cockroach Labs. It's Jordan Lewis. Hello, Jordan. Hi, everyone. Nice to see you over this video. Yeah, good. Thank you. I like the way you said that in a very sort of natural and, and authentic way. <laughs> we also have my friend and yours, John Calhoun. Hello, John. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm good, mate. Welcome back. It's been a while. 
How are you doing? It has been a while since we've done this together. That's right. Yeah, you were on it last week, wasn't you? Um, it's welcome back to me, if anything. Do you want to say it or? Oh, welcome back, Matt. Sorry. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, thanks. Good to be back. I figure if you're hosting, <laughs> I'll just kind of let you pretend like you've been here. <laughs> yeah, fair play. Okay. Well, I also like to do this little regular slot where I do a shout at or a shout out to uh, a Go meetup from the around the community. Today, we are shouting at the Utah Go user group and uh, Women Who Go Utah. Great groups there. Mariah Peterson tweeted that one at me. So you've been shouted at now. And if you're in that area and when you can, you know, check them out, go and join them in. Okay. I'm interested in this subject a lot because it's kind of like one of those ones that I think it has lots of interesting corners, but I think also there's a good, like having a good understanding of what's really going on can only help us. Maybe we could start with a little bit of history. What was memory management like in sort of programming languages before Go? Takes me back really, because I, I have programmed in C and C++ and a few other things. And uh, basically in C, you call malloc when you want some memory and you call free when you want to give it back. You can have things on the stack if you don't want to do that. And those are your options. So memory leaks where you just forgot to free things were very common. Uh, memory overwrites where you realize that someone else wanted that memory also happen. Pretty hard to get it absolutely perfect. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like, Because you think in the simple case, that's quite easy. You're going to ask for some memory, use it, and then give it back. But of course... Like as soon as you have anything a little bit more complicated, that that becomes a nightmare, doesn't it? I feel like anybody who's tried to teach with that style of programming should pretty quickly realize that even the simple case is not simple to somebody who's not used to it. Yeah, I was going to say you get into things like reference counting, where you try and try and keep track of how many different things in your program want the same piece of memory, and when you count down to zero, now you can free it. I used to do that by by hand on uh, iOS programming. It's got a little bit more automated since then. Yeah, it's it's always it's always a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I had that same thing. So I, I kind of started in languages where memory was managed, actually. Like, well, scripting languages and uh, C-sharp, languages like that. And then I wanted to do something for iOS. And so I learned Objective-C. And this was before the ARC, the ARC, Automatic Reference Counting that you're talking about. Before that, where you had to do the allocations and, and things yourself. And it is like, it is hard. You definitely end up relying a lot on the tooling to sort of, you know, you use the app in the simulator and watch the memory for if it's leaking where it shouldn't and things like that. But it was so nice when that ARC stuff came out and suddenly you just didn't have to kind of worry about that now. I think it was just the compiler, wasn't it? It was just would do it for you. It was checking where things were used and where they could possibly be used. And you know, when they sort of fall out of scope, then you know maybe they could be cleaned up. It's, but yeah, so we, we kind of take it for granted. Go has always had this, hasn't it? I was going to say, I, I feel like I'm remaining quiet because my whole professional career, I've only used languages with garbage collection. I did a little bit of manual memory management stuff in school and it was hard and it didn't matter as much. That was kind of the great thing about it. You could get it a little bit wrong. And since it was just an academic project, didn't matter too much. I didn't want to be the first one to mention the word lifetime. But for me, whatever you do with memory management, whether it's a language that has a lifetime kind of thing in it or not, it's all about thinking about those object lifetimes. That's what it comes down to, memory managed or not, right? Yeah. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that then. In the context of Go, 
if we have like just a very simple case, we're going to have a function and we're going to declare a variable inside that function. We're going to assign that to value, going to give it a value. And maybe then we're going to print it out and then we're going to return. We're not going to return it. We're just going to leave it. What's going on in that? What's being allocated there for us? And when does that happen? I think it kind of depends on what the function you're calling is, right? I think in some cases, depending on what that function needs to do with the object that you're passing it, you may or may not be able to simply allocate it on the stack. You might be able to not have to use any kind of malloc at all and just let it live on the stack, get passed to this thing, and get freed by the stack magic freeness of the world. If the function is doing something more complicated, if it has to store it somewhere or it is more, if it's not even storing it anywhere, but the, the compiler can't infer that it's not storing anywhere, it might actually cause code that's generated for that function call to require that the object that you've allocated gets promoted to the heap, which is kind of where the, the story begins. It does very quickly get complicated, doesn't it? Like for someone like me who's who spent decades trying to both understand what's going on and make it go faster, usually kind of understand all the ins and outs. But if you're as a beginner to all this, it's you know it just kind of looks like a variable. What are we talking about? So I think the two things, the stack and the heap, every go routine has a stack. And mostly your your local variables, things that you do in the course of a function will live on the stack. And it's very, very fast because as you come into a function, we just kind of add, you know, we say the compiler figures it out. Compiler figures out this function is going to need 70 bytes of variables. So it just adds 70 to a, a number, which is the stack pointer. And then we use the we use that memory, that 70 bytes. We're using that for local storage, local variables. You come out of the function, you sub subtract 20, uh, 70, I'm sorry. So you're just adding and subtracting. And as you call more functions, you add more. And as you return from functions, you subtract. And the stack is a really fast and simple thing. But that's all you can do. And that's what Jordan talked about. Lifetime comes into it. If you need a piece of data to hang around while you go call a bunch of other things, or you're going to keep that data and pass it between different Go routines, or you're going to cache it for the entire life of your program, that needs to live somewhere else. That can't live on the stack of one Go routine. So we put it in this, this other place, which, which goes by the name heap. Heap as in just a, like a big old heap of stuff. It doesn't mean anything particularly technical. It's just the word that we use for the way that those longer lived or, or at least might be very short-lived, but we don't know for sure. So we put it on the heap and then it can live for a long time. Yeah. So, But do you need to know about this in order to write Go programs? I would say not. I would say that is part of the magic of Go. You know, that's the intention of the authors that you you just write variables and you pass them around. And you can do things that are a complete nightmare in C. You know, you can return the address of a local variable from a function. That's a, a pretty much an instant crash in C. If it's not an instant crash, then it's a really weird bug. But <laughs> it's one of the, one of those ones that will take weeks to find if it doesn't crash instantly. But um, So Go uh, certainly makes it look easy, I, I would say. I would agree with that. To me, it feels like it really is trying to be a language where you can not have to think about any of these details if you don't want to. But if you want to, it also gives you some of the predictability, I would say, that you would expect from a language that is doing sane stuff using a stack and a heap kind of thing. You can, for the most part, predict when something is going to live on the stack versus something that's going to live on the heap. And that can really help you when 
working on problems that require performance. Yeah, one thing that's kind of interesting is uh, what is the line between not having to know about the stack and the heap versus needing or not needing to know about, say, pointers versus values. That's something that I think trips up a lot of Go newcomers, especially ones that are coming from languages like maybe Python, where you're really not thinking about this stuff at all. But I I think that's a little bit of an interesting choice, you know, exposing the, the detail about pointers versus values and not really thinking so much about stack versus heap. So how do you decide then? Just for anyone listening, how do you make the decision about whether you're going to use a pointer or use the the value? And we should say, like, for the difference, like, for example, if you've got a function that takes a pointer, you're literally just passing in a, a reference to something else, which is obviously a fixed size. Whereas you could be pointing to either big data or maybe you just don't know and so you want to be safe. Or you pass it without it being a pointer type and you then are copying the, the entire value into the stack right of the new thing so what's the consideration that you make when it comes to that i feel like there's a lot of them i think this is one of the most tough things that people struggle with right when they're switching to go it's like what is the algorithm that you're supposed to use in your head for choosing one of these things there's certain things that are definitely constant i'll name one of them which is that if you have an object that has a method on it or i guess we call receivers in go if that method is going to edit the object that cannot be a value receiver of an object. That has to be a pointer receiver or else you're going to become pretty sad. You're going to run this method and you're, it's going to edit. You know, it's going to say, you know, object.attribute equals blah. The thing will return and then you'll be extremely confused because the attribute of some object that you pass will have never been edited since really you're just examining and changing a copy of that, of that value. That's, I'd say that's a number one pitfall that I think even I've made mistakes like that and I've been programming in Go for about five years now. Yeah, no, absolutely. I like that one. That is like, if you're passing a pointer to an object, then it's able to make changes to it. This is basically what you were saying. The analogy of taking in an argument there. And of course, if it's a value, it's a copy, so you can't. That also communicates something to the user of your API, doesn't it, as well? If you have an API and you can use it as an opportunity where maybe you've got a mix of these methods or functions, and some of them are going to modify and some aren't, would you use that pointer as a sort of signal to that? If I recall correctly, I think some of the Go style guidelines kind of suggest that if you use pointers for some of your methods, that generally you should use them for all just for consistency's sake. I mean, I get what you're saying, but I think the other side of the argument is that if it's not all consistent, it just could lead to some weird code to to manage and to read. They'd rather just keep it simple, keep it all the same. I believe that's what it was. I'd have to go look again because it's been a while since I've read wherever that was. We've talked a lot about other languages and say C++, you have this uh, const word you can put, uh, so you can explicitly say whether whether the program's supposed to be able to, to modify this thing or not by, by well, the absence or presence of the word const. You can do that on anything. Can you do that on any variable, on any object type? Because in Go, we're, we're sort of more limited, aren't we, with our consts? In Go, you, a const is a um, 3.14, you know, the value of pi could be a con, it's a constant, it's it's that kind of constant, a constant of the universe or a constant of your program. But in, in C++, the word const can appear as a modifier on anything. Anyway, we're talking about Go here because it's the Go time. <laughs> so yeah, it's a little bit that certainly if there's no pointer 
on a variable, then you get a copy of it. You do not get to modify the original. Well, I say that, but you know, it's confusing because um, something like a map is inherently pointer-like. Uh, well, that's that's what I the way I say it. That um, if someone hands you a map in Go and you make a change to it, add something to the map, you've added it to the original, and it kind of makes sense because you you know the map might have a thousand things in it. You don't you don't want the the Go runtime to go copying a thousand things every time you pass a map to a function. But it is, I think, you kind of build up this set of rules you have to remember, like an int or a struct is going to copy if I pass the thing by value. A, a map is inherently pointer-like. A slice is kind of in between because the I get given a value of a slice, I can write into the, the elements of the slice, but I can't uh, change the length of the original. I can change the length of my copy. Yeah, these are, I think, mildly confusing parts of Go. They are, but as you sort of iterated them out then, I realized that it doesn't come up often. Like, I suppose because now I sort of, I'm just second nature. I know if you're passing a map around, it's a map pointer, essentially. But uh, yeah, I'm sure there will be cases where they that matters. But, it, you know, this comes back to kind of, for me, Dead simple designs, really obvious, not trying to do anything clever. You know, if you're taking slices and you're going to modify them, that sounds a little bit magic. I'd rather get them through a return argument kind of thing. So I don't know if I avoid it through that reason, but it is interesting, these things. And what about the size thing? You mentioned a map with a thousand items. If you have a, a struct and it's just this great big object and it's got some image data in there, maybe, and you know what I mean? It feels like a big thing. Is that enough of a reason to decide to pass it by a pointer always, just by default? Well, I guess I'm trying to figure out how your example works. So your example says you're holding a map that contains a big byte slice or something like that? I just mean a struct. Uh, your own your own type, but it's got a lot of, you consider it big. I see. But maybe it makes sense in your API that uh, you know you don't have a pointer because you're not going to be modifying this. So you want to pass it in, but... Do you get a performance penalty if it's copying all that data into that? You definitely do. And I think that there's a judgment call about what's that threshold? Like, when is it worth it to allocate and pass this thing by pointer? And we haven't even really talked about the performance costs of allocation really just yet. I'm sure that will come up soon. But definitely there's, depending on your program to some extent, and probably there's some rule of thumb that says maybe if it's, I don't know, more than, what would your, your thresholds be? Like 64 bytes, 32 bytes or something like that? Uh, I don't really know. Well, I, I can guarantee it will change from one CPU to another, probably from one type of memory chip to another. There's no one constant number where it's going to you know, pass that threshold of whether it's cheaper to copy or cheaper to pass the pointer. Modern CPUs are amazingly fast at copying memory. I bet that number is bigger than you might have guessed if you haven't actively gone out and measured it. That's an interesting point. And you also mentioned measuring it. And I think that's another quite important piece is it's nice to write efficient code, but it's you, you can worry about it too much, I think. And sometimes it doesn't matter. But I don't want to ever discourage people from learning more about that because it is very interesting. What's going on, Gophers? This episode is brought to you by Equinix Metal. If you want the choice and control of hardware with low overhead and the developer experience of the cloud, you need to check out Equinix Metal. Deploy in minutes across 18 global locations from Silicon Valley to Sydney. 
Visit metal.equinix.com slash just add metal and receive $100 in credit to play with. Again, metal.equinix.com slash just add metal. talk about the performance of allocating memory then of course there's it's not a free thing to do but it's it it sort of feels like we are just reserving the memory not that there's there's like effort to 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 reserve that memory what is the cost yeah i do do remember it's it's nearly free on the stack it's when we do this uh, lifetime management and we we want it to hang around for longer that's when the cost goes up one of the most interesting things to me about doing performance measurement of simple things because that's that's what we really love to do as programmers we're like well let's try to figure out like what's the fastest possible way that we can write this like fairly simple algorithm that just does a couple of things right so we love to do that we love to write a micro benchmark goes micro benchmark support is excellent it, it's got all these different facilities and there's bench stat and you can like profile things up the wazoo etc one thing that i find very interesting and that's kind of bitten me several times is that if you just take a look at a CPU profile of a little micro benchmark that does a bunch of allocating, it's going to seem really cheap. Those allocations are really fast because the garbage collector is really good when the computer isn't under load and when there isn't GC pressure, right? When the garbage collector isn't too taxed, it's going to be very cheap to allocate and the garbage collection is going to happen in the background and everybody's going to be pretty happy. What I've seen over and over again is underestimating the effects of doing a lot of allocations based on in a real program, kind of micro benchmark versus real program. In a real program, those allocations are almost always going to add up to be more than what it seems like in your micro benchmark. I think it, it might be useful to, to try and motivate, think for a bit about what, what is hard about managing a this thing we call a heap. So first of all, what is it, right? So you've got some random program. It's allocated a, a bunch of, of small blocks, maybe eight byte. It's allocated some bigger blocks, maybe some 64K blocks, maybe one block of 103,402 bytes. And the, the memory manager, the heap manager, will has to let you do all of these things and do them in, in any quantities, in any order, and uh, within some bounds, right? Your, your whole computer has got, you know, whatever, 64 gigs of RAM, 16 gigs of RAM. Well, you know, what, there's, some, there's some limit that, that you can't go above, but uh, the heap manager will let you allocate any number of blocks of any size within that, that overall limit. And then it will let you free them up, stop using them in Go. You don't explicitly do that. When you no longer have any references to a particular piece of memory, then that's considered garbage to begin with. It's still kind of hanging around. We'll get to that in a second. But assuming we've managed to, to free up some memory. Now the manager has, next time you want to allocate some memory, it's got the task of figuring out where there's a hole. You don't want to just get bigger and bigger and bigger the whole time. You've you know, you've allocated 64K, you freed 64K, now you want to allocate 64K, you should probably use the one you just freed. So the memory manager has a task of trying to give you back the best block to keep things under control. Maybe not the best, but some kind of reasonable choice of block. It's got a lot of options, right? If you freed up 64K and then you allocated eight bytes, well, it could take the first eight bytes of that 64K. I'm trying to, I'm trying to kind of motivate this picture that it's actually really complicated to, uh, 
keep track of all these potentially millions and millions of blocks at all different sizes. Then we throw in some performance considerations that uh, most computers these days have multiple CPU cores. And you, you really want to keep the memory together on one CPU core and not kind of have little bits of memory next to each other being used by different CPU cores. So the, the memory manager is going to try and, and help that along. It's going to actually keep different typically called arenas of memory for different cores. And we haven't even got to our garbage collection yet. It's already really complicated. And any any memory manager in C, in C++, in Objective-C with your automated reference counting, they're, they're all doing the stuff I, I've talked about so far. You know, They're all kind of keeping track of, of what's in use, what's not in use, what could be reused. They're all doing that. Yeah, so I was going to say, yeah, the reason why you can be relatively proficient at Go and not worry too much about what's going on underneath, although, Brian, you made a good, that was a good example of a case where when you do know what's going on, you might make different design decisions. The reason is really because Go has this garbage collector in there that's kind of freeing up the memory in our wake as we just sort of plow through our program. Tell us about the Go garbage collector. Is, is it good? It's pretty good. I think reasonable people can have vicious arguments about this. I'm sure they don't. So garbage collection as a computing technique has, has got to be 50, 60 years old. A lot of work has gone into it since the early Lisp. And so the, the Go garbage collector is not state of the art. It's kind of a couple of steps back from that. But it, it is very, very effective. I'm pretty uh, pretty sure I could go there. The exact nuances of which techniques it uses and doesn't use. There's a great paper. We should put a link in the um, in the show notes. There was, I think, a keynote speech at a conference where, where somebody went through the um, entire history of the gold garbage collector and, and, and spoke about that they had actually tried out a lot of these more cutting edge techniques and the difficulties they had fitting them into to the kind of world of Go. We kind of skipped ahead slightly, haven't we? I mean, what is garbage collection? We talked about it in, in vague terms, this idea that once you no longer have any reference to a piece of memory, that, that it's, it's considered garbage. And, and so what you want to do is identify all the garbage and then make it available for reuse as your program carries on trying to allocate more memory. And these days in, in Go, it's running uh, Go routines in the background, kind of walking across the heap and doing this process of figuring out what's in use, what's not in use. It needs to figure this out starting from all the places you can start in your program. So that's, you can start from a global variable that could be a pointer to some memory. It could be a, a local variable on the stack of a Go routine. And anything that they point to, anything that those things point to, all of that, there, there's some way to reach a lot of memory, and that's the not garbage. And it has to work out what is garbage, which is everything else. So yeah, it runs along in the background. So it, it doesn't stop the world. This used to be a big thing in Go. It used to kind of halt everything and then figure out where the garbage is and then carry on. And that's a bit annoying if you're trying to have a very uh, interactive program you know, something that's serving serving requests very, very quickly, it, it would stop for 100 milliseconds or something like that. And, and that's jarring if you're trying to interact with it. So it does most of the work in the background, figuring out what the, what the garbage is. And then uh, there's a very, very brief pause where it does still stop the world, but it stops it for, I don't know, tenth of a millisecond or something like that and resets a few pointers and, and then carry on. Now you can allocating memory, running your program, and so on. So that's 
basically how the Go garbage collector works. It it does all of this in one heap, so so it doesn't have what's called a generational design. It doesn't try and separate out younger lived things and old longer lived things. It's not a copying garbage collector, which can be nice if you if you sort of take all the non garbage and kind of copy it all the way down into one end of memory. That's all together, and the cache works better that way. Then you start fresh in the in the kind of the big expanse that you've just moved everything. A lot of garbage collectors work that way. The go go garbage collector leaves everything where it is, never moves memory on your behalf. So that has pros and cons. I think that's that's kind of the up to a certain level exactly how the go garbage collector works these days. I like how you describe it in terms of what it's not. I think that's a very effective way. It's hard to describe something in terms of what it is, especially something that's so complicated as a garbage collector. Yeah, it's it's viciously complicated and you know really hard to get right. And I I certainly. Um, Take my hat off figuratively to the to the authors of the Go Garbage Collector. Absolutely. My colleagues like to remind me that even though the Go Garbage Collector is not a moving collector, I think the spec for Go allows it to be a moving collector, which is kind of interesting. No doubt, despite the fact that the spec allows this, uh, it would break untold numbers of programs that use unsafe pointer and things like that. But I, I always thought that was kind of a neat loophole for the future that the Go team left. Yeah, well, it's funny we talk about this idea that this our garbage is going to be collected for us. And Brian, you mentioned a scenario earlier where you have a block of 64K and you, you free it and then you get another one immediately and you free that and then you get another one. Why not just hold on to the one that you already had? And this is the concept of kind of using pools, which you can use. There's a pool in the standard library, the sync pool, which sounds cool. Yeah, well, I like to appeal to the um, the song that goes reduce, reuse, recycle. <laughs> yeah. At this point, that um, well, first of all, if you reduce the amount of memory you're using, then there's going to be less work for the garbage collector. But if you could reuse memory, like like you were just saying with a the pool, then again, the, the garbage collector has less work to do. And then finally, I, I I guess recycle is what the garbage collector does. I like that. That's a great analogy. We've also seen cases where people try to do that on their own. I thought we had one episode with somebody who talked about channels and passing, I think, bite slices into the channels. Do you remember that, Matt? I don't remember which episode it was. Yeah, I don't remember that. But yes, actually, well, let's talk about just quickly what the, a pool is, because it sounds really like cool and clever. It's actually quite simple, isn't it? Well, I can tell you a little bit about what a pool is. I don't know so much about how it works under the hood, to be perfectly honest, but the general idea of an of an object pool is that it, it allows you to reuse big and complicated and expensive to create objects. You know, you ask for one of these big and complicated and difficult to create objects, you fill it out, you use it for a little while. And then when when you're done with it, instead of just giving it back to the garbage collector to, you know, chop apart and throw back into the heap, you have a little moment in which, well, I guess you don't have to have this, but you can have a little moment in which you can clear it out and get rid of any other references in there or do whatever you want with it and then stick it back into the pool for later use. And the the purpose of this is really just to amortize the amount of work that you have to do to to make one of these big big things in the first place. And this, this can come into play in a lot of different scenarios. I think in People love to use Go for like microservices. So for maybe a web service or some like RPC service or something like that. And a lot of the time you can imagine, you know, an RPC service is sitting around idle maybe, or it's doing a bunch of work and then it's doing very little. 
Um, and every time that it gets one of some request, it has to do some complicated thing and make a big object and do a bunch of like initialization work. And with an object pool, you know, if you don't mind using some memory for you know a big cache of these objects, basically, you know, you can skip a bunch of that initialization work, and that can that can really be nice. You can you can see improvements in your overall program's performance uh, depending on you know how expensive that initialization really is. Yeah, I think that's basically the summary of uh, of an object pool. It's probably worth noting that sometimes it's not even big objects, it's just things that are slow to set up. So like a database connection pool is pretty common where you don't want to connect to the database every single time you're talking to it. But if you have like one pro, you know, a pool of connections that you can just take and use, then every single request isn't going to have that delay of connecting to the database and making sure it's all good. I would add one thing to that which is we didn't particularly talk about the performance angle, but the garbage collection does take a lot of work. It's it's work that mostly happens in the background, but it's it's undeniable. It takes a lot of work to to kind of walk through all the blocks of memory that have been allocated and freed and figure out which is garbage and so on. It takes it takes a lot of work. So the thing about the thing about big objects is that Go has a um, a level a, a number which is the limit that it's going to let the heap grow up to. This is a dynamic number. Go tries to sort of figure out what's the best number for your program. But let's say it's a gigabyte. You know, your your program's running along, it's doing a lot of stuff, and you're using memory, you're discarding memory, and the, the total amount of memory that, that is in play, if you like, will grow up to one gigabyte, because that's what I decided the limit was for this example. And when it hits one gigabyte, now Go has to definitely figure out what's what, what's garbage, what's not garbage, because that's the sort of target it set itself. That's We call it a full garbage, like full GC. It's, there's stuff going on in the background. It can kind of reclaim stuff as it goes. But when you hit that limit, it has to do a full sweep and kind of know exactly where everything is. And one reason for that is it's going to make a decision. If it genuinely can't get any more free garbage, it's going to go to the operating system and, and ask for more memory. At, at this point, it's probably going to go to two gigabytes. And going to the operating system for memory is a relatively very expensive thing to do. So uh, Go is trying to keep to that limit that it previously chose. So back at the question of of large objects, simply by allocating, like let's say you allocate uh, 10 megabytes, you can only do that 100 times before you hit the gigabyte, right? Just in simple terms. So every 100 times you go through that that bit of code that, that allocates 10 megabytes and then discards it, turns it into garbage. You're going to hit a full garbage collect every time you hit that threshold. And full garbage collects are, in simple terms, you know, I'm simplifying because it's horrendously complicated under the hood. In simple terms, you you want to cut down the number of times you do a full garbage collect and the rate at which you do a full garbage collect. So just for that reason, any kind of relatively large buffers, blocks of memory, you may want to pool, not because they actually cost a lot to set up, but because they drive that number. So that's kind of a a subtle piece of knowledge that you might not pick up. And how do you know if you're in that situation then? Is this back to you measure things? And so how do we do that? Like, what's the best way to measure this stuff? It's about setting up application metrics and paying attention to the sort of things that you have access to as a Go program. I think you can get um, some pretty detailed information about what the garbage collector and the heap is up to as a Go program by sort of asking the runtime. There's a special function that you can call, and it gives you back a bunch of information 
So, you know, you can kind of do this at a low level, but there's a lot of libraries out there that kind of have figured out how to piece this stuff apart and expose it as, as metrics, maybe as Prometheus or as a little web service or something like that. So you don't have to go through the pain of figuring out, you know, what of these, there's a lot of metrics in there, to be honest. There's like 50, something like that, 50 little different struct members that all have subtle different meanings that are important. But uh, I think as just a basic idea of what's going on in the heap, I really like this program called StatsViz, which somebody named ARL made that just exposes this little HTTP server that has a little kind of real-time drawn graph of the different lines. Like that threshold that Brian mentioned is, is represented very clearly. And you can kind of see it's really neat. If you're running it on an active web server, you can see the actual amount of heap kind of trending towards that that threshold. And as soon as it comes above, then you can see there's a line for the full GC. The thing drops back down again. The idle changes. It's it's actually very fascinating, especially both for just learning about how garbage collection works in general as well as understanding the behavior of your program. Great. Yeah, that tool looks great. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for sure. So I I work a lot with Prometheus. A lot of the Prometheus maintainers work at Grafana Labs. So that tends to be my my go-to technique for for looking at, at what's going on, particularly at scale. You know, if you've got 100 programs running and you want to keep an eye on what the bulk of them are doing, it's basically the same data. It's coming out at the go runtime, but the uh, they show up as as things named things like uh, go underscore memstats underscore heap underscore alloc underscore bytes. That's like one of the core ones. That's um, that's how much memory has been allocated, and that's the if it's going reasonably slowly, you can you can see that number rising. It typically looks like a sawtooth, right? It it rises quite slowly, then it drops very sharply when we free everything up in that full garbage collect, and then it, it rises again. And um, what might be happening in your program might be garbage collecting like uh, 10 times a second, in, in which case the metrics are not going to pick that up. It's just like a blur. And unless it's a really, really small program, you do not want the garbage collector to be running 10 times a second. Like once a second is more moderate, or once every 30 seconds or something like that is It's a trade-off, right? The trading off how much memory you've got, against uh, how much work you want the garbage collector to do, against how big is your program. There's no kind of hard and fast rule. Well, there's one hard rule. If, if you're doing garbage collection, Go will run it, the full garbage collect, every two minutes. That's as slow as it will go. That's hard-coded into the runtime. But if you um, watch the rate at which garbage collections are happening, which is a different Prometheus metric if you're doing it that way, I've forgotten the name. But if you watch the rate at which it's happening, I think a lot faster than one a second is is probably too fast, and you can't really go too slow because it, it you know, you really run out of memory or you'll hit that two minute point. I didn't know about that two minute point. That's actually pretty interesting. That's like a that's a trivia yeah. question right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One thing I wanted to actually quickly mention just to tie this back into the object pool question. I think that there's something neat that happens, isn't there, when there's pressure on the go heap. Doesn't something special happen to the object pools? Don't don't they notice and uh, maybe drop unused objects or something like that? I'm never exactly sure how that works, but I bet one of you know. So the pool we're talking about is is in the sync package in the Go standard runtime, uh, standard library. So sync.pool. The way it kind of looks like it works is you get things out and you put things back. But sort of under the hood, it's got a secret tie-in with the garbage collector, just as you say. And depending on how things are going, the pool might might shrink a bit uh, in order to free up memory for the garbage collector. Mm, I didn't know that. 
Yeah, another secret, another good trivia question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have to go to a very specific kind of pub where the, these are the sorts of questions, but <laughs> when they come up, you're going to look. I mean, you're going to look great, aren't you? I just thought it was every pub in San Francisco. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by our friends at LaunchDarkly. Feature management for the modern enterprise. Power testing in production at any scale. Here's how it works. LaunchDarkly enables development teams and operation teams to deploy code at any time, even if a feature isn't ready to be released to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release more widely, update the flag status and the changes are made instantaneously by the real-time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at LaunchDarkly.com. Again, LaunchDarkly.com. So with this garbage collector cleaning up after us all the way, that means we can't have a memory leak, doesn't it? Ha ha. Ha ha ha. <laughs> we all laugh. Oh. Somberly. Sad face emoji. What do you mean? Well, there's a lot of different ways in which you can have a memory leak even in a garbage collected language. I think the one of my favorite memory leak stories or types, I guess, is it also has to do with these sync pools. So not to not to hammer the sync pool to death, but Imagine what happens if you have one of these objects that's a little bit complicated, right? Maybe it's big, maybe it's small, but maybe it's a struct and it's got some slice pointers. Maybe you're actually like slicing the front off of those slice pointers little by little because you're maybe you're implementing a queue or something, whatever it is that we do when we slice off the heads of our, our, our slice pointers. Is it, as it turns out, the garbage collector cannot free the front half of slices. If you take off the first five elements of a slice and then you don't, change what that slice is pointing to, that that array never changes, let's say. Those first five elements will stay on the heap forever. And let's say that they actually are pointers to some other giant objects. And those those objects are basically lost and you, you'll never really know. You can get into really, really bad territory with stuff like that. And that's happened to me several times working on uh, CockroachDB, which is this big Go program that has a lot of tricky stuff to deal with memory. Yeah, that's one that... Uh... I've seen myself because I was trying to teach people how to use a queue or how to write a queue and go like the simple implementation. You want to do that, but then you also have to like have the caveat of like if this goes long enough, it's eventually going to break because you know just going to indefinitely keep using memory. So it's like hard because you're like I want to show you the simple version, but I also don't want you to have something in your code that potentially is going to be problematic. But there's also like another case where that happens is when you have um, like Go routines that just don't end. For some reason, and like time.tick is is an example of that where it's a function you call in the time package that when you call it, it gives you a channel that will send a message every so often. So it's supposed to tick every second or whatever time you want. Like it actually actually has explicit documentation that this won't be garbage collected. And there's there's ways to do it with that with garbage collection, but that specific helper, there's just not a way to clean it up. That's so strange. So what? Why is that thing? Why is that slicing the heads off thing? By the way, I like how you describe that. You sound like a murderer. But why does it do that? The first five. That seems such a random thing. And is it not fixable? Basically, the the reason for that is that a slice, right? As we know, it's got a little bit of information about the length. That's the slice header, and it's a it's got an array pointer. That's what makes up the data inside of the slice. 
And as I understand, once you've like created the array that has the data in it, you can't exactly say to the garbage collector that this array of a particular size is like half collectible, or you're just not allowed to do that. That's based on how the, the implementation of the garbage collector kind of works. It probably gets into things like size classes, right? When you're allocating objects of a certain size, I think the allocator likes to give you chunks off of a particular area that's all doing chunks of a certain size. So if you were to maybe edit the size of an object that's already been allocated, probably something would get confused and et cetera. I bet this is fixable. I don't think that it's something that's hard and fast, impossible to fix, but I doubt that it would be fixed soon just because I don't think it's the most important thing to, to improve in the Go language right now. You can have pointers into the middle of, of an object, whether it's a, a slice or a struct or, or whatever. And that's kind of part of the picture. The, the way things are, any number of pointers, whether they're at the beginning or into the middle of a single object, keeps it alive, keeps it from being turned into garbage. That makes sense, I guess, doesn't it? You'd, you'd be surprised if it wasn't the case, would you? I think Jordan's example, you could construct a, a kind of you know proof acceptable by humans that, that nobody could ever get to the beginning of this slice. But as he was saying, the garbage collector doesn't have sufficient information about what's inside objects that uh, would allow, allow it to break it in half or whatever. So I was, I was going to say, you know, the, the word leak, when I first programmed in C, we, a memory leak was, was when you had lost all reference to a block of memory. Uh. You know, you would do that quite a lot. So it was just leak the memory, you know, no, you could never get back to it. You could never free it. And it just, it just kind of hung around because there was no garbage collector in C. In garbage collected environments, we use the same word, a, a leak, but we, we mean memory, which we do still have a reference to. Something is still keeping it alive, but we didn't mean to. It's hanging around. We don't actually have a purpose for it. It's hanging around because we've got a reference to it, but we didn't mean to have a reference to it. So that's, you know, it's kind of different use of the same term, but, yeah, but you know, it amounts to the same thing. This thing called a leak, what it means is your program's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and, and eventually go bang because you, you ran out. Yeah, that is weird that they're both leaks. It's like having a leak where water is staying inside where it belongs or something. I can't, I can't, right. I can't remember. Yeah. I think you can even use a leak for something I would say even more mundane, which is that let's say your program, maybe it's tracing itself. Maybe it's working on distributed tracing and it's got some big long lived request. And maybe the request is working perfectly well, but maybe you've, the way that you've implemented your tracing machine is that it just keeps adding little entries to a list and eventually it's going to want to publish that list somewhere. But what if that list never really ends? Like, I mean, it's not exactly a leak because, you know, we have a reference to this big list of events or something like that, but um, we just haven't thought about changing our program to stop allocating when something happens in a little bit of a longer-lived fashion than we were expecting. I would categorize that as a leak, even though it's not mm. really lost memory. Unbounded, unexpected growth. Yeah. Seems like a leak to me. Yeah, right. It could be completely valid code. You know, all your tests pass and everything's okay. But just because of the particular situation, it keeps growing forever. Yeah, I could see that. I just wanted to add one more thing about the leaking situation that how do you figure out where your leaks are coming from is a big question. And uh, Go has a memory profiler, which is really nice, GUI and you know bring it up in your web browser and so on, read up on that. But what the profiler will tell you is where the memory was allocated. What you really need to know is where is this pointer that's keeping it alive? And uh, I know Jordan's been doing some work on tooling to try and figure that out. 
Yeah, so it certainly wasn't just me. Um, there was a, a program called ViewCore that's existed for quite some time that lives inside of a kind of xDebug package or something like that in the Go library world, maintained by and created by somebody at Google. It's kind of rotted several times because it, it has this weird property, which is that it, it's got to precisely mimic all of the internal structures of the Go garbage collector. And if it gets anything even subtly wrong, it just won't work and it'll be just completely broken in ways that are impossible to understand. For example, something that I looked at fixing and, and I have a patch for, haven't merged it yet, but there is a patch on, on uh, my fork on GitHub, is um, they changed the meaning of this bitmap. Like there's some bitmap somewhere inside of the Go allocator garbage collector world that says, you know, which object is alive in this chunk of objects, basically. And they, they switched it so that instead of having, I might be getting the details wrong, but it's something like instead of just having one bit per object, they switch it so that every other bit was an object. And then ViewCore was not updated to have that change. So of course, like, you know, maybe you could run it and it would like kind of work, but the, the results would be complete nonsense. So it's a little bit unmaintained. I have some patches that I think do get it back to a maintained state. And what does it do, by the way? I have been sort of just blathering about stuff without explaining what this thing does. It's a really cool tool. If you take a core dump of your Go program, so that's what happens if you, know, if you send a killing signal to this program, Linux will dump a big file that contains all of the program's memory, all of it, you know, just exactly how it was in memory. And so you can theoretically be the Go garbage collector. You can do that algorithm that Brian mentioned, where you find all the roots of the program, all the vars, all the finalizers, and all the, the stack variables, and follow all the pointers down uh, to figure out which of the objects that are alive, which of the objects that are dead. And crucially, since you know the layout of those objects based on dwarf information, which is this whole other thing, right? Inside of a, a binary, it's going to tell you what the layout of objects are. Since you know all that information, you can actually figure out all of the pointers from an object to its children, to the things that it's referencing, as well as by doing a whole other graph algorithm, you can figure out the things that are pointing to an object, which is, that's like the holy grail information, right? So it's like, let's say you have some big object that you can't collect for whatever reason. You want to know what is that object and what are the things pointing at it? And so this is what you can kind of do with, with a tool like ViewCore. There's all sorts of neat things, like it's got a couple of different commands you can run on it and stuff like that. I probably don't want to go through all of them, but it's, it's really neat and uh, you should check it out. <laughs> I will mention one, one last thing here on, on ViewCore, which is that if you're feeling really ambitious and you want to like really blow everybody's minds in the Go community, in the Java world, you can actually, you don't have to run this algorithm on a, I guess, a dead core file. You can actually run it on a live program using this like completely insane technology that this company called Yorkit made. You sort of attach this little agent to your Java program, and it can figure out the the like reachability map and all of those things that I just described on a live Java program. And that that really saved my butt several times at the last company that I worked at that used used Java. And gosh, if if something like that existed for Go, it would absolutely like change the game completely for any Go program that uses significant or complex uh, memory models. Mm, well, that sounds awesome. Um, we should uh, put a link to the project in the show notes. So check them out there. Well, I'm afraid it's that time again. It's time for Unpopular Opinions. going to tell us our first unpopular opinion today. I brought one. Let's have it, Brian. And it's not about Go. I think all the all the ones about Go have been taken. <laughs> yeah, on Reddit. 
on Hacker News, yeah. My unpopular opinion is I want, in a chat program like like Slack, say, they added threads so you can take a message and, and sort of start a thread of conversation from that message. Yeah. So I, I want to be able to take something that's um, on a thread and make another thread. Uh-huh. I, I want threads of threads. <laughs> that is unpopular. To be honest. <laughs> that's an unpopular one. Oh, yeah. I think that's going to be really unpopular because there's already some people that they discourage the use of threads because they're not very accessible. That's that's like meta, isn't it? They should call them goroutines. It's so meta, though, that idea. So you mean like on a tangent, you go off on a tangent and then you go off on another tangent? Exactly. I feel like this is basically Twitter threads where they can do that. Kind of, yeah. And it's awful sometimes. They have that on Reddit too, right? You can have the whole tree of threads. Yeah, I like this for the, for the record. I, I think that this is a great idea and I will subscribe to it. <laughs> the UI needs to be different though, doesn't it? Like if you have a different UI, that model of conversation I think could exist, but probably needs to be a VR world where you can sort of navigate through 3D space and time fourth fourth dimension. That's a good one, though. Uh, uh, we haven't had an unpopular one about Slack before. We've had people say they don't like Slack. Yeah. But that's probably the extent that's of That's not unpopular, is it? I feel like that's a 50-50 one. <laughs> it's just about half of the people like Slack and half the people don't like Slack. I kind of, Brian, I think your idea, it's also kind of like, it sounds like a work of complex literary fiction. You know, sometimes you get one of those books <laughs> where there's a big footnote, and then inside of that footnote, there's actually several other footnotes. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, the James Joyce of uh, tech or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, amazing. Well, I don't like it to vote for it. We're going to put these on Twitter, of course. Follow us on at GoTimeFM. I think the at is optional. I don't know. Try both. Okay, uh, do we have any other unpopular opinions? Yeah, I've got one. I don't know exactly how unpopular this is these days, but I switched to using Windows for my stuff. (laughs) Really? And I know that's crazy to some extent, but uh, it's also kind of great. Because they got this thing called WSL2 now, which is like the Windows subsystem for Linux. And it's actually awesome. It's like you can do all the Linuxy stuff that you want to be doing, you know, run your compilers and your top and your whatever it is that you like to use Linux for. But then you don't have to have the pain of dealing with the year of the Linux GUI, which I hear is still this year, right? Maybe, maybe next year. I'm not sure. And I don't know. I actually kind of like Windows. That's my unpopular opinion. Yeah, wow. Okay. Um is is that like some kind of VM thing? Does it run natively in some way? I think that WSL2 the magic of it is that it is sort of native to some extent. It's like it's more of a hypervisor kind of technology. I'm probably using all the wrong words than a than a VM, but I don't really know. All I know is that it's 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 uh it's quite fast. Yeah, okay. You don't notice any problems with it. Exactly. I really like the technology they're doing for that because I feel like there's a ton of people that just use Windows from gaming or other stuff and it's great to make programming more accessible. But it's so hard for me to switch back when I'm like used to certain keyboard shortcuts and things like that that just aren't there. Like in Mac, I can hit Control A and go to like the start of a line and like that doesn't work in Windows and it drives me insane every time. Yeah, I had to contend with that one too. But I, I what I ended up doing is using what is that program called? Uh, Auto Hotkey that lets you just go completely buck wild and do all sorts of insane things with uh, keyboard shortcuts. So I spent like a solid couple of weeks just tweaking Auto Hotkey, and now I have like sort of customized machine of my dreams. Nice, and it only took two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and he's gonna go to his like somebody else's computer, and they're like, "Show me how you do that," and he's gonna be like, "I can't use this computer." Right now. <laughs> 
I can't use any other computer now. It's been so long, I've now forgotten how to use it. Yeah, that's the danger, isn't it? I got recently one of those ergonomic keyboards that's kind of split into two. Um, and it is quite weird to use because I'm not used to it. But I started to get kind of familiar with it. And then I went to a laptop and I was just like, I really need to cut this laptop in two, ideally, and see how, see if I can get away with that. Just stretch it out to the same shape. You try that and let us know how it goes. Yeah, okay. Have you got a laptop I could borrow? <laughs> I mean, it kind of reminds me of people who use those different keyboard layouts. Like, um, what's the other one aside from QWERTY? Dvorak. Dvorak. Yeah, like I had a friend in college who used that. And every time he'd like try to do something on somebody else's computer, it was always fun to watch him type. Yeah. Because it would take him a, like a minute to be like, I, I can't do this. This is so hard. Yeah, there's a French keyboard layout as well, where it's basically QWERTY, except the M is just in a different place. It's just like... <laughs> You know, that's <laughs> that's trolling at that point, surely. I used to sit next to a guy called Adam who um, had no writing on the keycaps. Mm. Very minimalist. Very cool. What about you, John? Have you got any specific tech that you wouldn't do without? That I couldn't do without? Yeah, or wouldn't? I, I'm sure I have some, but it's hard to say. It's kind of like when you like reset your phone and like install it fresh. And you don't know exactly what apps you had until you go to like click and you're like, it's not there. Okay, I know what app I'm missing. Yeah, I know. On uh, I always think that when on Star Trek, they go to an alien ship and they're like, oh, I think this is the navigation control. Can you make it work? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think so. What do you mean? I can't even use Android. <laughs> well, you can't get to an alien ship and just be like, yeah, no probs. Beep. You know what I mean? I mean, they're optimistic. Yeah. Well, just Especially because really phones are a lot uh, less fatal if you mess them up. Mm-hmm. Depends what you're doing, doesn't it? I, I've never done anything on my phone that was fatal, I'll say that. <laughs> Congratulations. Okay. Um, any other unpopular opinions? I'm sure this is going to be a popular one, but I love that this show is has like a, this game show component. It's amazing. It's really fun. Having a blast. We did actually do a, an actual game show once as part of... Uh, one of the gopher cons and uh, it was great we got actual contestants and we had questions and they had points oh it was the oh yeah we'll definitely do that again maybe we'll save it for some special event like the 200th go time episode which i guess will be happening this year maybe so that'd be cool i think that's like very soon like within an episode or two Oh, we do. We should do a special show on the two hundred. Two hundred. This is one ninety four. So anybody who's listening, one ninety four. You've got six more episodes, or I guess five more than the sixth one will be the two hundred. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for today. Unfortunately, I feel like there's so much more we could talk about on this subject. Maybe we'll do a follow up episode sometime. Brian, thank you so much. Jordan, a pleasure. And of course, John Calhoun. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. That's it for Go Time. Thanks for tuning in. We have a bunch of podcasts for you to check out at changelog.com. If you need somewhere to start, check out Founders Talk 79, where I talk with John Newmaker about the time GitHub acquired his company, Speaker Deck. You remember Speaker Deck, right? Of course, the easier move would be to subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com slash master and get all our podcasts in a single feed. Also want to give a shout out to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. And thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for all of our awesome beats. That's it for this episode of Go Time. We'll see you next week.